everybody. I'm Colleen Anunu, Director of Coffee Supply Chain at Fairtrade USA and member of the SCA Board of Directors. You're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from RICO Symposium, SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel, where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all of the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy Cold Brew Systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. Okay, well today we are happy to present the third and final episode of the Changing Tide session recorded at RICO Symposium this past April. The main focus of this session was to have those often difficult conversations around diversity and inclusivity in our coffee communities. If you haven't listened to episodes 27 or 28, we strongly recommend going back to listen to those before you continue with this episode. On this episode of the podcast, we are pleased to welcome Jen Chen, San Francisco-based coffee marketer, writer, and photographer for specialty coffee companies. Welcome, Jen. Hi, everyone. We are also pleased to welcome Tamika Lawrence, green coffee sales representative for Atlas Coffee Importers. Hey, Tamika. Hi. And last but not least, Chad Trevick, owner of Recipro Cafe, a company which works on mutual benefit priorities for the coffee value chain, and member of the SCA Board of Directors. Hello, Chad. Hello. How are you doing? Great. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We're going to start by listening to a panel you all took part in at RICO during our session around diversity and inclusion. Then we'll come back and talk about the session as a whole. Does that sound good? Let's do it. Sounds great. Okay, here is our final panel in the Changing Tide session at RICO this past April. Jen, Tamika, and Chad were on this panel with Isabella Pascual Becker, Doug Hewitt, and Michelle Johnson. Let's take a listen and we'll come back to chat. Um, And so this conversation is called uh, the uncomfortable conversation. Um, and uh, it's, it's an exploration of the ways that these conversations around uh, marginalization and uh, privilege in, in the world, but also within the context of the industry that, um, that we all exist in, um, you know, why these are necessarily uncomfortable and how to get comfortable in that uncomfortability. So with that, I would like to introduce um, the uh, three of the panelists from the first session, and then two, three newcomers, actually. Um, we have Michelle Johnson, we had Chad Trevick from Recipro Cafe, and Tamika Lawrence, who is the East Coast sales representative for Genuine Origins. Hello, 
I hope you're enjoying this SCA podcast. My name is James Harper, and I help the SCA produce them. There are times during these talks where it's difficult to tell who's talking. So I will come in occasionally to act as your eyes. Okay, back to the podcast. Great. So I really want to start it off with, uh, with a question to you three as newcomers to this panel on um, why these conversations are necessarily uncomfortable for everyone that has them. And maybe also explore a little bit about, uh, you know, how we can uh, how we can position ourselves in a way that, that we can engage in, in a productive way. About to speak is Michelle Johnson of The Chocolate Barista. I think these, co- these conversations are uncomfortable because it, it forces those with privilege, like you said was a triggering term for a lot of people, to have to look inward and realize that, you know, no one wants to feel like they didn't put in hard work. Um, no one wants to feel like what they did didn't matter, but... Really, it's, you have to give up something so that those without can get ahead. And that, once you realize that, that's, no one wants to give up power. Like, everyone wants to make sure that they have their seat at the table and keeps it. Um, so when we are having to talk about these, these types of things, it's, those realizations are very hard to swallow. Right. Um, and, and getting past that, def- that defensiveness is very difficult. Right. Understandable, but... We have to do it. Right. I mean, it's like Baba said in her talk that when, mm-hmm. when she was working to empower women farmers in her communities, that, that the men were feeling very disempowered and they were feeling pretty agitated. Right. right. Speaking next is Chad Trewick of Recipro Cafe. Uh, I think the uh, conversations are difficult because they are, uh, like Michelle said, they're, they're kind of calling people on their, on their, on their bias and they're, and they're, and they're exposing their, their privilege. Um, I have occupied a very confusing space through most of my adult life where I can walk through the world with an enormous amount of privilege as a rich white male uh, for, all, for all, you know, observational purposes, a heterosexual male, um, and a lot of assumptions are made. And, and, and if I don't call people on that and have that uncomfortable conversation, then I'm in a situation where I have to pretend something that I'm not. It's uncomfortable to call people on it. Speaking now is Taimika Lawrence of Genuine Origin. Um, I think a lot of these conversations are necessarily uncomfortable because uh, to echo what they both said, nobody wants to acknowledge the fact that they may have uh, played a role in the um, marginalization of somebody else. But there is also something, um, there just is not a reckoning with truth in general, right? So like, if we, were, if we all knew, um, the history of the United States, it wouldn't be surprising that there are certain communities that are marginalized and structurally, you know, from the federal government on down, it, you know, you can look it up that that was done on purpose. Like Phyllis said, right, some system, systems do what they're meant to, and until you dismantle them, they will continue to do so, even if we put um, a better face on it. And I do think there is a degree of what, um, actually Andre mentioned it in his last, in that talk before lunch, where he said, if we were forced to reckon with our consumption, like so there are people who purposefully do not seek out knowledge, or rather subconsciously don't seek out knowledge because they know if they did, it would make an impact on how they, um, on the decisions they make and the things that they have to reckon with. And I do think that there is, um, 
I refer to as like cognitive dissonance. And I do think that there is a lot of, of you know, subconscious distancing between the issue, uh, specifically because it's uncomfortable, but it's important to, I mean, if you don't realize, if just having the conversation makes you uncomfortable, imagine the level of discomfort that other people must be living with, right? Like, if, if your comfort has been so prized that you literally don't understand the realities of the country that you live in, then how comfortable could everyone else be? <laughs> and so it's like, this conversation is gonna have to be uncomfortable. And like Michelle mentioned, it's, um, we don't. <laughs> there was someone who actually, in this barista hustle group about the panel we were on last year, was kind of like, these ladies just like to complain. And I'm like, what? If I could literally never talk about this again, I would be just the happiest. I love coffee. I love talking about coffee. I'm not too shabby at it. I would love to just talk about that, right? But I don't have the option of not talking about it. So like Chad said, it's like, it is also uncomfortable for us to have these conversations. And, and so it's, it's uncomfortable on, on all sides. Um, but I do think in regard to like, how do, you, how do you have these conversations in a way that leaves people opening to listen to them? Mm -hmm. I think two years ago, Tamika would have said, well, you just have to be patient, you have to do this and you have to do that. But there, there is a degree of, you just have to get over yourself, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the people, you don't wanna talk about these things, but people are living them. And so it's like, I don't really care that you don't want to talk about it because we're kind of tired of living with it. And if you would just amend your actions, we wouldn't even talk about it. But if you won't, and if you're going to make me do it, you just have to get over yourself. Um, and so there is just a degree of that, right? Like it, it is an unfair ask of the people who are always maneuvering around the things that make life hard for them to then when they bring it up to you to only do it in a way that's comfortable for you because that's the only way that you can listen. It's, I mean, there's really not a, another word. It's, it's just, it's insensitive, right? And it's, the lack of empathy there is staggering. And so I do think like, as much as I would love to always be able to have the conversation the way that I am now, when it's touching every part of your life, you can't always. Like you're, we're a human being with the same emotional capacity that is being tested often. And so then if, if people are reacting in a way that, that seems, you know, sort of dramatic, you have to imagine, like, were I, if I were in those shoes, if I were always maneuvering around these things, if I always had to think about them, could I? I'm like, there are people who get their, who you get their coffee wrong and they lose it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do think that there is, like, you just kind of have to get over yourself and also really try true empathy and, and put yourself in that person's shoes and think, what must that be like? And would I always be able to be composed mm -hmm. and patient if that were me? Right. Sorry. <laughs> so I want to open it up to everyone now and um, and, and ask you because of the we have we intentionally focused on on you know this this concept for the the U.S. or retail market, but then also across value chains as well. 
Um, and I, I, I want to know, there are people out there that, especially in the Barista Hustle group and in other areas on social media and in, in, in our lives that say, you know, you're having a nuanced conversation about privilege, but there are people that are struggling to exist, right? So where is this conversation, like, is there room for this conversation and that conversation? Or, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you navigate that, that sort of, um, that, that criticism of the type of level of, of nuanced discussion that we're having? Speaking next is Michelle Johnson. What this reminds me of, um, this was something that, uh, this was a link that was sent to me recently and I had, I had placed it in our last newsletter at Barista Hustle because um, I feel, feel like it directly answers this question. Um, it was a National Geographic article that was a photo essay about indigenous transgender women working on coffee farms in Colombia. Um, so, to say that, you know, especially what was going on last year with, you know, Dubai and the deferred candidacy policy, to say that, you know, this is just an American snowflake um, conversation and that, like, you know, this, that's just them being American. Like, no, these identities exist around the world and at our coffee farms. Like, you can't, how can you erase that? So yeah, we do have the space and the capacity to, to have both these conversations at the same time because they are on the, happening at the, you know, the producing end of the value chain as well as the retail. Speaking next is Tamika Lawrence. And I think that conversation is only meant to derail. Mm. I can't see a way in which that, that um, critique is useful. Um, because there is nobody who would run their business this way, right? So if you were running a cafe and your heater stopped working, but also every day the register was off by $30, you would never say, gotta focus on one thing, so I guess I'll pick the heater. <laughs> you, you would look at all the problems that are in the business that you're running and try to evaluate them all and fix them all because, and even though you know that you might not be able to, you would never say, I can only focus on on one issue, and so it's, that is such a, it is, um, it's just a derailing thing to do, and it's a way to say, well, you have, you have, in this situation, have relative privilege, so just stop talking, and worry about people, you know, and worry about the issues that are happening at Origin, and um, I would, if you find yourself wanting to make that critique, I would stop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Simply because if you are making, if a person is saying this, it means that. And I do think there is this thing where we're always like, let's tie it to a statistic, which I'm all for because the statistics are in my favor. But even if they weren't, <laughs> I, I do believe in tying things to statistics so to make them palatable. But I do think that um, even if it's an issue you can't understand, why wouldn't you not want to be empathetic, right? So if it's something that hasn't occurred to you, it's because it doesn't happen to you. And if it doesn't happen to you, it doesn't mean it's not real. And if it's enough for someone to bring up, that's it, right? Like, why does there even need to be, why does it need to be a ranking of like the things that make someone's life horrible? <laughs> it just seems so <laughs> petty. <laughs> About to speak is Isabella Pasquale of Daterra Farms. It's a very good perspective, but after what you're saying, I would follow up because you're saying that we have to wear 
we, put, we have to put ourselves in, in each other's shoes. And while I, while, what I've been learning in our farm and in Brazil and in the countryside is that we have to wear their shoes and learn that from my privilege to theirs, there's a huge road. And uh, I cannot jump from my side to their side, even if I'm wearing their, their, their perspective. Right. So what we learn is that how can I start shortening this road so that everybody will be able to talk about the difficult issues. Because what I learned is for a couple of years, we do kind of a research in the farm and we ask what people understand from being sustainable. And for two years in a row, it comes because you, we are paid in the right date, just like as if payment would be a sign of sustainability. Second thing is because you invest in irrigation. We were like, what's the point? Because it's the guarantee of my job. That's why they understand about sustainability. So what we've been trying to is from this knowledge that they are, they just want to feel safe because of their employment, we want to shorten this bridge into reach the tip of Maslow Pyramid. pyramid. Mm -hmm. So what we did is that we tried to start doing things that create, creates a link to the people that we work with by, for example, we name our very best coffees after the women that works in the farm. So there, there was a, a, a Maria, there was a lot of brand names, and these little things creates a link to them, and by this link, we, we create a trustful path so that we can start inserting more difficult themes, like the feminism, like uh, taking care of their health, like many aspects that you have to build this bridge into being able to talk to them. But what is our most important tool is the education. So we have a lot of programs in the farm from giving uh, scholarship to supporting uh, school materials to their children because we believe that with education, everyone will be able to make their own choices. We don't want to make choices for them, for no one, from pickers to managers. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do this anywhere. We want to give as much as knowledge and education. So from a picker to a small producer, they can find their own way, their best way for them to improve their business, to improve their life. And that's how we believe we are um, contributing. Speaking next is Doug Hewitt of 1951 Coffee. Yeah, I think, I mean, very much this question, I think as Tamika said, I mean, is, is often very much meant to, to derail a conversation, to kind of not deflect and like, let's talk about this instead. A lot of times it's just to shut down the conversation. And I think a lot of times, you know, in, in the work that, that we've done, um, you know, we'll often see, you know, a news article maybe is released or something, and someone will be like, well, why aren't you helping this group? Why aren't you helping this group? Why aren't you helping this one? Um, and I think very often for us, we have to respond in a way that says, we're, we're not against working with any of those groups. This is the, one, the, 
group of people that that we were we were with that we were equipped to to work with and to 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 work with this issue of of injustice and not to put down the efforts that are taking place anywhere else and and i think that that's I think if we, if we try to like say, okay, we, we can deal with a certain level of injustice here because this is really the, the, the real problem, I think that begins to make us numb to, to injustice in general. And it's just the ones that we've prioritized. Where we're like, we prioritize this one, so this is injustice. The others will just be numb to that. And I think that's, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in the call that we had last week, um, we started talking a little bit more dynamically. And Tamika, you said something provocative, shock. Um, that <laughs> you had a perspective um, that the, you, you're finding in your experience that the longer you, the longer that people are in the coffee industry, right, or the, the more, um, I guess, the more recognized they are, um, the less that they actually pipe up about um, a lot of these injustices. And wonder if you could share about that, and then I would love to have your perspective, Chad and, and Jen. Yeah, my reason for saying that is is twofold. I think um, we this came up essentially because Colleen was saying that she felt like a lot of the um, like a lot of the orgs that were that were put up there. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, that yes, Colleen feels like the conversation is changing um, because all these orgs have sprung up. Um, but and this is actually something that Phyllis mentioned earlier, and I'm like, yeah, but those orgs are coming from people who are the most, who are feeling all of these issues the most, right? So like, there are a lot of issues that I, that when I started as a barista, I don't experience now in my role in the same way, right? So I have like insulation in my role that people, that other people don't. And so there's like a lot of, all of this organizing that we're seeing is totally groundswell coming from like the entry point at the coffee, to the coffee industry. And so when we're looking at, conversations shifting, they are shifting, but like, I mean, to reference Four Barrel, it's because of the end users involved. So like a lot of the things that we're talking about today don't have anything to do with the end customers, like the person that is taking that coffee from a barista or grabbing a bag of beans from the shelf, right? These are internal industry issues that customers have no, that end users have no context for. They mean, these words mean nothing to them, right? And because they don't mean anything to them, we could not ever talk about these issues and not ever move the needle without it ever touching them unless someone did some investigative reporting that somebody actually paid attention to. And so I do believe that like, when we're having these sorts of conversations that there is a hesitancy to name, to call things what they are. There just is. And so it's not, uh, I don't think that we will be insulated in that way forever as globalization continues and as you know, coffee um, consuming goes up, I don't think it will be possible. And as producers get connected to social media directly, I don't think it will be possible to not, con- to not have these conversations and to not, and to not actually name our issues. Uh, so I think it would be good if we would start. Uh, because I do find that, I do feel like we could find ourselves in that place 20 years from now, 25 years from now, when everything is even more in- interconnected than it already is. And I do feel pretty strongly that, yeah, it is hard to get people to be upfront about that sort of stuff the longer they're in the industry, depending on, on, the, role, uh, on the role that they have. 
Speaking now with Michelle Johnson. I, I want to piggyback off of that because um, as the chocolate barista, like I'm no longer a barista and I have a different position now. So I'm not, you know, directly engaged with what's happening to baristas. But that's where amplification comes in comes into play. Um, because as you move up and you're in the industry longer and you start to gain a platform and have, you know, the microphone handed to you more often, you can pass that along and help those who are still um, very much dealing with those problems be heard instead of you just trying to speak for everybody. Jen, I would love to hear your perspective as someone that is that's directly working with people and to amplify them. This is Jen Chen of Akaya Scales. Um, so I mentioned earlier to uh, make change where you can, um, and one of the organizations that I helped with was on that slide, uh, the Bay Area Coffee Community. I didn't start it, um, but I did uh, help revive it three years ago. Um, and these difficult conversations or having space for something that's not just a throwdown for baristas, like maybe we can have some other events for on baristas, like everyone needs to learn. Um, and not everyone has the same access to education in their business. Um, so I, I think yielding space to some of these conversations, um, I was one of those people that Tamika mentioned of, um, I wasn't so comfortable in having this conversation four years ago. Uh, I still hate it. Um, but I felt like my voice and my representation, anyone who looks like me really, I haven't seen on stage. Actually, I'm thinking today, um, I am the only Asian American, I think, today, uh, Asian woman. Um, so it's, visibility is important. Um, having your voice heard is important. Um, even when you're writing or marketing or organizing events, having people who don't look like you is important. Um, for me, almost everyone looks not like me, so <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, I think, I think giving voice to like, not just baristas, but a lot of people in the industry is important. Speaking now is Tamika Lawrence. You just reminded me of one thing, if I may. Um, and specifically since when we're talking about, I think part of the reason why people are less forthcoming as they go through the coffee industry is that we make it hard for people that don't tow the party line of making people comfortable to have careers. And so I'd actually, and that won't serve any of us going forward. Like, and a really good example actually is like that Pepsi commercial from a few, <laughs> a few years ago uh, where essentially people kept saying, doesn't Pepsi have any, you know, there, were, there was an allusion to police brutality and one of the Kardashian Jenners gave somebody a Coke and all of a sudden everything was fine. Um, and it was really off the mark, and anybody that was, is in a community that's affected by those issues would know that it was off the mark, and everyone kept saying, don't they have any women or people of color or black people in Pepsi's boardroom and, or in their advertising room? And I'm like, I don't necessarily know that they don't. They actually might, but is it the, it, does the person feel comfortable saying something? So if, yeah. you know, like, if you can only do well in a company, and of course you're not going to be yelling at each other in a boardroom, but if you can only do well in a company by agreeing with your CEO 
or not saying anything that makes anybody uncomfortable or saying anything that's challenging, then that's what's gonna happen. Even if the people are in your company, mm -hmm. people who could stop you from making mistakes, and I'm gonna bring up Four Barrel again because it applies. <laughs> Women worked at Four Barrel. There were women on the management team at Four Barrel. And if there was one person with the foresight to say, we need, that guy has to go, because this is a, gonna be an issue. But did anyone feel comfortable saying that? Obviously not. Or, or, or even if they did say it, were they respected enough for anything to be done about it? No, so a culture was at that company where even if someone would say something, nothing would happen. So we don't know whether they did or didn't. And this is like a major loss of, of income that could have been avoided in a place where the culture was, yes, you can disagree. Yes, you can call out something that's wrong. And so it's like, I don't care. You could hire a room full of marginalized people if, if you don't respect their opinions enough or if you haven't created an environment or if you ever see someone not agree with you and you automatically are like, no, I can't accept that in, in, a, in an employee, then you, it doesn't matter, right? And so you still end up in the same positions anyway. So I implore everybody to take a look at like the standards that you have as far as, and honestly, the standards are not the same across the board. I have been told I've been emotional in a meeting, in meetings where men yell at each other. I mean, they're yelling, and I'm like, I don't know, maybe you don't know anger's an emotion. So if you're yelling, you're being pretty emotional. And I've never yelled in a meeting because I, black lady, cannot yell in the place I work, right? And so not even that these standards are applied across the board. It's fine for some people to disagree, and it's not fine yeah. for others. So you should look at the standards to which you're holding your marginalized staff. And if all they ever say is yes to you, you have not created a work environment <laughs> where, where they feel like they have the right to disagree. Yeah. Sorry. Take us home, Chad. Uh, great. No pressure. Uh, well, one of the things I think is really interesting, I, I, I have the perspective of having been in an industry for 25 years, and we're just now on the cusp of uh, what I think is a a growing call-out culture. And I think it's long overdue um, because to some extent, the lack of uh, equity and, and, and equal opportunity in our industry is, is, is pushed aside and, 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 and that lack becomes normalized uh, just like our crazy politics are becoming normalized. Um, and the longer you're at it, uh, the, the less attention is drawn to those things. And so we need for these things to be called out. We need to, uh, those of us who are, are entrenched in the emotional work, we, we have to do the work to contribute to the, to the, to the conscientious and awareness raising, um, making ourselves uncomfortable, and hopefully making other people uncomfortable. Um, it is no small amount of work, and I think it's been talked about on this stage, to have to consider, go through the, the, the mental list, am I safe? Can I talk about this? These are my hosts. If I tell them this, are they still going to want to be my hosts? Right. Um, and and if, we, if we aren't doing those things and being our, our own self-advocates um, and, and contributing to the greater good, we're, we're, we're missing uh, huge opportunities to be a stronger, uh, better industry. And I think the, the stats have, have proven again and again that, that, that we need 
a diverse set of perspectives and life experiences to move through this world in a productive way. Yeah, but just to close that out, I mean, this other thing that Tamika said that, you know, there's so much about that that is, that is highlighted right now because it's consumer facing. Yeah. What about the flip side? What about the other piece where it's not? Well, the fact that, uh, well, so Phyllis said in front of a, a stage or in front of, on the stage in front of this group today the, that we are operating within a colonial system and that hasn't been called out in our industry for a very long time in a very public way, but the fact is that we, as an industry, um, on, on this end of the value chain, have made gobs and gobs of money on the backs of, uh, in most cases, an exploited um, producer pool. And we haven't that's totally normalized in our industry. We can talk about this for years and years, and for 10 years I've been coming to symposium, we've been talking about this, and the behaviors haven't changed. And so this, the fact that cheap coffee exists, because we're all free marketers and there's a lot of supply of cheap coffee in the world, um, isn't really making it okay that its value is below its cost to produce in the majority of places. And yet it's... Yeah, the longer we go, the more normal it is. Yeah. I wish we had more time. Um, but I just want to say that if anyone has been keeping tally of how many times Phyllis Johnson's name has been mentioned yeah. today. <laughs> okay, thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks. So that was our panel with Jen Chen, Tamika Lawrence, and Chad Trevick, Isabella Pasquale-Becker, Doug Hewitt, and Michelle Johnson, the closing panel of the Changing Tide session at RICO Symposium this past April. So you all, we have a lot to talk about, so let's get started. So there was a lot of different concepts that we talked about on that panel that day and in the whole session, and it came up throughout the entire RICO, uh, all of the RICO talks on, on that first day of, of the RICO Symposium in April. And what I really want to focus on in this podcast interview with you three is this conversation around inequities between producers and coffee buyers. So our panel had a, had a real strong focus on the concept of structural inequality. And we examined how when systems are set up to provide a certain result and the behaviors within that system are normalized, then anything that, that we're doing to sort of counteract those behaviors or to achieve a different result are met with a lot of friction. And um, you all provided such real examples and commentary about how uh, those sorts of changes in behavior or calling out of behavior manifest in your daily lives. And first, I just really wanted to say thank you for sharing that and your vulnerability and such truth-telling about your lived experience on stage. I think that was very powerful for the audience and hopefully very powerful for the audience at home that just watched the, the panels and, and the talks. So thank you very much. Um, I wanted to spend this interview talking about one of the last things that was mentioned on the panel because it didn't get much airtime after that. Uh, Chad sort of said a thing and then dropped the mic and then we were all done. And 
Um, so I really wanted to just focus on what Chad said about how coffee in the coffee industry really operates in this historic colonial system and that we are working with an exploited producer pool and production base and that that these behaviors just have not changed over time. Maybe they're wearing, you know, different different clothing or they they look different, but it's essentially still the same thing. Producers in general, uh, a lot of the research shows, and if you talk to any producer, they would tell you that uh, that you know coffee producers are losing. It's a it's a losing proposition. So Chad saying that and um, insinuating that cheap coffee exists because of the system and the behavior is just normalized over time. That's really what I wanted to focus on today and sort of use the experience and expertise of you three to talk about, you know, what you're seeing in the coffee industry now in terms of producer advocacy or companies that are really working to do, uh, to change behaviors and to, to change the system. Um, what you're seeing, what's working, what isn't, and how can we be better advocates uh, for the future of specialty coffee? So how does that sound? I know it's not it's not the, the uncomfortable conversation, but it is, you know, maybe it sounds good to you. I don't know, Colleen. I think it is a really difficult <laughs> and uh, uncomfortable conversation because oftentimes when I hear people on our end of the supply chain talk about coffee uh, and about producers, I feel a little bit like I'm in the twilight zone. Uh, there isn't a lot... This is definitely informed by my experience as an immigrant and also like as a black person in America. Um, but it does seem like the people who benefit from these structures are very bad at seeing them. And so as much as I'd like to talk about higher level, what works and what doesn't, um, and we definitely, there are people doing really good work and we should talk about that. <clears throat> there is a little bit like people don't even realize the depth of of how far this goes and how just how like sort of historically tied this is uh and even the ways that they that we are talking about producers and and coffee so cheap and people are kind of talking about it but not really um it's really it's a very uncomfortable feeling <laughs> when you know where these systems come from. And it's exactly like what Chad said. And so I think there's a little bit of like needing to reckon honestly about the system that we're even participating in um, before we can even really say like, oh, these companies are doing a great job. Or I think people could change. Realistically, I don't think people are engaging with the fact that this is a colonialist system. It doesn't look that different than it did like 30 years ago. And that's really troubling with especially with how low the market's been and that's not even including inflation right it's kind of horrifying uh when you think about it yeah i i would i would add to that that i mean i think it's really important like you mentioned tamika to sort of think back to how and why coffee even spread around the world uh and that was through these colonial exploitive uh, in, in some countries, even uh, slave conditions were, were the responsible uh, tactic to getting coffee to be spread around in a scalable way to multiple countries. And if you look back uh, 30 to 40 years, 
certainly nothing has changed on the producer side. What coffee represents in terms of a, a, a livelihood supporting opportunity has been flat or down for a whole generation. Um, and what's really frustrating to look at, especially as a participant in the specialty coffee industry, is all of the wealth being generated and all of the connoisseurship being celebrated and all of the fancy getting fancier on this side of the value chain, while there isn't that same kind of benefit being enjoyed in the countries that frankly we depend on in order to even have an industry. So it's a, it's a really uncomfortable conversation to get back to that. And honestly, if I could, if I could just add on to that, uh, when you mentioned that for essentially for a generation, it is not improved and has gotten worse for a lot of producers. You hear a lot about people wanting to keep youth engaged in the coffee supply chain. And I'm like, what? You, we're not doing things to make it better, but we should ask the youth to do it. Would your youth do it <laughs> under those conditions? And so it does feel so insane where it's this idea where, and of course, right, I love coffee and I want it to be around, which is why I want us to do a better job, but certainly not at the expense of like a gener another generation, what is essentially generational poverty for people, right? One of the issues that coffee has is calling a thing, <laughs> coffee, haha. One of the issues our entire society has is calling a thing by its clear name. Uh, and so it's like, I don't feel comfortable feeling like we're contributing to another generation of food insecurity or poverty for producers while profiting, one, you know, definitely profiting off the fruits of their labor. So I think those are all really great points. And I'd like us to get to the, I think we have to do the reckoning thing. And like you said, Chad, it's really kind of, for me, I've been able to make, I mean, I'm a college dropout that made a career out of coffee, right? And I'm immensely grateful. Uh, and I would definitely like, and a career that has been fruitful for me. So uh, we do need to see that also happening on the other end of the supply chain. Yeah, I'm wondering before, we start thinking about some potential solutions or what we're seeing from the, from the buyer end, you know, how, what roasters are doing in terms of talking about their relationships or, or even really changing their pricing policies or sourcing protocols, things like that, and, and really expanding on their relationships. Um, I just, I want to quickly get a response from Chad from that comment, you know, basically after, after we were done with the panel, a lot of people were sort of buzzing about, wow, I can't believe someone was finally up there saying some of these things. And to Tamika's point, you know, the issue that we have is calling it what it is and, and, um, you know, assigning a, a heavy amount of weight to it. And so I was just wondering, Chad, what, what was some of the response from your industry colleagues uh, that, that you know that are arguably in positions of power to affect change here? Well, I, I think what's really important to recognize here is that these circumstances have become normalized. And so unless we carefully work on our ability to see what's happening around us on an ongoing basis, it all becomes 
noise, right? It all, it all, it all just becomes part of our background. And I think that's what happens to people the longer they're in the coffee industry, the more normal it seems that we have this incredibly exploitive uh, value chain. And so what was really interesting for me was to gauge the responses of my uh, industry peers who were in buyer roles for a long time um, and look at the, the expressions on their faces where they kind of knew what I was saying was truth but they also felt within their roles beholden to generating shareholder value and uh, maximizing profits for the company and achieving a low cost of goods target. And so you, you could see, see and sense really the frustration on their faces as a result of having called out what's happening here. It's essentially, it's an exploitive supply chain or value chain really only for the benefit of a few people on one side. Um, and I myself have benefited from those priorities, right? Like my former employer remunerated me to some extent based on my ability to achieve these low cost of goods sold targets. So the better I bought, better being cheaper, the better the company did. And so for me, that was a really uh, a challenging reality to confront. Um, but I would say after that session, a couple people did come up to me and say, wow, I'm glad for you uh, having said that. Um, I, I, I think that was a big step. Now, what I'd really like for us to see uh, in the future is a willingness to evolve beyond that and really start to recognize where there really is a win-win situation and that isn't going to be pretty, right? Not every place is going to be able to produce coffee uh, efficiently enough that the market's going to be able to pay for it. Um, not every place is going to produce a coffee that has a high enough quality that the market will pay a premium for it. So it, I just think this, this honesty that we're bringing to this conversation is going to bring about more upheaval and challenge. Um, but it's important to keep pushing this conversation because we have to evolve. We can't just keep sitting back and watching it sort of unravel before us. Um, so I, I don't have any experience in green buying, uh, but I would say for the U.S. market, um, at least in the industry, uh, we need to have more education around the history of coffee. I know that when I entered the industry as a barista, I learned about uh, processing and cupping and um, how to pull a shot, but no one told me about the history of coffee. I had to go out and read the books, um, and even the books kind of glossed over um, some of the actual parts of colonialism, um, and that's a shame. Uh, I think it should be in the education that we teach to new baristas and roasters. Um, and we could definitely be doing better in that area. Um, I don't think we can improve, at least in the U.S., uh, in terms of uh, working on um, this structure if you don't even understand it at all. Um, so I would say step one, put it in education. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I think 
just that just offers such good reflection for 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 me and and some of the work that you know SEA has been really leading in terms of skill building workshops and you know focus on standards related to coffee quality and cupping and obviously it's it's very important from a mechanical aspect of doing your job but why isn't understanding the historical and economic context of of producers that you're saying you have relationships with why isn't that part of a mechanic of doing your job as well you know and um and I do I totally agree with you Jen and that's just it's something that that I also don't see, whether it's through private companies that are offering education or through um, through the association's just general education platform and skill building workshops and, and certificate system. So, yeah, I don't think that's that's not really that's not really part of it. And I'm I'm with you. I think that with the way that our market is set up, pressure needs to come from consumers. <laughs> so. I would certainly like to believe that everybody would do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But if that were the case, it would have already happened. And I do feel like one of the things that is really good at moving a market in the right direction is the threat of losing uh, customers because they feel like they don't want to participate in a supply chain uh, that maybe isn't, that definitely isn't as equitable as it should be. so I'm wondering, and I wonder all the time, like, what are the ways that we really engage um, consumers? Not because I don't believe that there aren't people who want to do the right thing, but it is very easy for us all to kind of say, like, well, I'm trying to do the right thing and sort of wring our hands and then move on to the, like, billions of other things that we have to, that we're, you know, sort of responsible for. And so what I think is we the urgency, the sense of urgency needs to come from somewhere. And I think when it's coming from the consuming market, it feels the most urgent. I, I really, really agree with you there, Tamika. I mean, I think uh, for a while I was thinking, oh, let's just write the consumers off and try to get companies to see the need to uh, increase their attention paid to this manner, matter just for the sake of self-preservation, right? For companies to be able to guarantee a, a future supply chain, they need to change their behaviors. But the reality is there keeps being more and cheaper coffee available from other countries and they'd rather go and buy it there than evolve their purchasing practices. I have a fantasy little uh, project in my head where we could actually work to uh, increase consumer awareness to the fact that uh, unless it says otherwise and is proven otherwise by the brand that's offering the coffee, coffee necessarily comes from environmentally and uh, human exploiting uh, conditions. There's simply no other way for it to come about at scale. Um, And I think that that, you know, sort of, I I, I tongue in cheek say, "Mm, good to the last drop. If you know that's a part of your cup every morning during your daily coffee ritual, I feel like that would be maybe motivating, Um, at least awareness raising. I agree. And I'm also interested that I've seen, I do feel like I've seen in other markets that people have left it until it's too late. And the companies that are sourcing well and doing the right thing end up way ahead. Right. So I'm still not against the, the um, company education 
we need like a, a lobbying group for producers <laughs> to lobby co- to lobby coffee companies um, because it it really is the long term good business decision, right? So like one of the things I think about a lot um, with the market being really low is and and you know this is like totally hypothetical, right? But if I'm working, if I've been working with a, if I'm a producer and I've been working with a roaster for like 10 years and we have a relationship and they want to buy into, like they want to book out for like two years or something when, because specifically because the market's really low, I might do it because I don't have another choice, but there's no way it doesn't change the way I'm relating to this business. It's just impossible. Right. And so I'm always like, coffee is really a relationship business. Is it worth it? Like, so you have a two, a couple of windfall years. Okay. But what comes after that? And will that, will those producer groups want to work with you again? Will you be able to source that product again? Right? Like these are all things I do think that will eventually actually start affecting people's bottom lines. And so, yeah, people are going to have a couple great years, but I'm really interested in seeing how long that last and like what does what does that look like and what do those companies look like three years from now yeah i i think that um there are some growing producer voices out there i think that one of the interesting things that we're seeing as a result of the first world coffee producer forum meeting held in july of 2017 is the producing countries are getting their voices together and aligned and basically preparing to shout out loud, Houston, we have a problem. Hey, coffee market, we can't keep acquiescing to and accommodating all of your incremental expectations and requests and requirements uh, and certifications and everything else and by the way, do all of this in a cost-neutral way that isn't going to pay for itself. We can't do it anymore. Sorry. And so we're seeing organizations like the World Coffee Producer Forum uh, putting putting some some governance and structure behind who and what they are, uh, generating some interesting economic reports that they're going to release in June or July of 2019. Um, also uh, working with Promo Cafe um, that represents a block of, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's 10 countries within the Mesoamerica, uh, Central South America, Caribbean region. Um, and these producing countries are basically getting together to say, we have to broadcast what's happening here and really make sure the market knows and understands not just how vulnerable they are to uh, raw material, but frankly, how vulnerable they are to being found as uh, supporters of exploitive supply chain practices and behaviors. Because frankly, there's there's no way to avoid that. There's frankly no way uh, for uh, most farmers to even ensure that they can pay a minimum wage to their employees, um, let alone comply with social security and other uh, other 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 laws. Uh, so there's there's 
growing voice, let's say, on the producer side. There's work being done toward the development of a producer guild within the SPA. Um, but the fact remains that that group within our value chain, the producer group, is the most marginalized and yet put on a pedestal and exploited not just for the green coffee that they produce, but then their stories are exploited and sold and put on bags and packages. Um, and they certainly aren't seeing the benefit of that. So we have to support these efforts that continue to include the producer voice. Yeah, I would love to expand on that real quickly, Chad, and, and sort of pivot over to Jen. And, you know, Jen, as a as a coffee marketer and someone that has works with coffee companies on, on product packaging or even sort of brand image, this, this concept of marginalized coffee producers and the exploitation of the story and um, exploitation of even the purchasing practices, like how novel are they if they're really just within the same system? So I'm, I'm just wondering from you, like, what do you think are some tactics that will get consumers to take notice if if we think and maybe some other people think that it really needs to come from consumer activation or consumer pressure to uh, to to I don't know just to to sort of put company hold companies accountable for their their exploitative practices I think that uh, it's kind of difficult to only rely on consumers to put pressure on companies um, we in the US at least, people don't like paying more for things that they don't know why they're paying more. Um, and if we don't give them a reason, um, then they're just gonna say, wow, this is a really expensive cup of coffee. Why am I paying for this? I'll just go somewhere else. Um, and so I think it needs to be both ends, consumer activated and um, business activated. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, from the business end, I've see a lot of people doing or companies doing lip service um, like Chad mentioned putting um, producers on the bags or telling their stories uh, saying that they're um, sometimes they even saying like words like our farmers uh, in the same line as they would say our farmers our staff um, our workers I saw that this week uh, and just like the words that you use to talk about the people you work with, um, unless they are your employees at the farm, um, is important. Uh, so if you can't even do that part correctly, then um, I, I don't know. There's, you need to work on some stuff. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in, in general, um, I think transparency is super important. Um, for example, uh, Junior's Roasted Coffee out of Portland um, started working on a transparency project and they have their cost um, of production and purchase uh, for one of their coffees on the bag. Um, so consumers can read about how much the company paid um, and the cost of uh, what went into that coffee and why it's being sold the amount that it is. Um, and then on the education side, they just worked on a comic book uh, to talk about the cost of production. And I think that's 
kind of ingenious because it's a different way of speaking about it that's a little more approachable for consumers. Um, and I think we just need to do a lot more of that, honestly. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, the, from the first thing that you said about, you know, consumers don't want to pay more. They're, and if they do, they're going to ask why. And it's like, well, we've conditioned we've conditioned coffee drinkers to think, you know, look at this brand, look at our fancy equipment, look at all the care that we're putting into the quality and let's talk about perceivable acidity and all of that. And so essentially they're like, okay, well, I'm paying more for this. But when it comes down to it, like how do we make these fundamental economics sexy in a way that that this is something like, okay, this is a these are fundamental economics. You have to pay more because it costs more. You have to pay more because I want to value this unpaid labor of a family in such a way that they receive a living wage or that they receive a minimum price or sorry, not, um, a minimum wage. And so how do we, um, how do we like just make that conversation a little more digestible? And, and so many people say, well, you can't do it. You can't do it. It has to be simple. It has to be like a direct tie back. You know, people don't want to be thinking, and I'm not just thinking about like going to your average blue bottle or, you know, I'm thinking about how do we make this accessible in a, in a convenience store setting even. I mean, because arguably those are the types of retail environments that are going to move volumes and actually move the needle. Yeah. I, I really like what you said about transparency being a critical linchpin here, Jen. Uh, I'm involved in a project with Emory University related to it's what we have is a project called the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide. And so far it's just on pilot phase, but we have uh, 21 data donors representing more than 10,000 coffee contracts. Uh, something like $340 million worth of coffee. So it's more than just a drop in the bucket. And what we're trying to do is report on market purchasing behaviors, uh, first and foremost, so that we have an alternate price discovery tool to the New York Sea, the commodities market. Um, and so just getting some kind of familiarity around what's a container of 84-point coffee coming from Nicaragua uh, valued at according to this guide, right? And then we take that to the next level and start to generate reports related to what do these different prices being paid for certain countries mean in their local context? So like, is it A, at or below poverty level? Is it B, empowering the payment of minimum wage to families and, and any hired labor? Or is it C, a price that empowers and encourages farm reinvestment and a thriving production environment? Um, and so a couple things there, trying to make an easy to digest message out of what these prices mean. Um, and also uh, I think the appetite for transparency in our industry is growing. Um, because I think a lot of people know and understand that it's really the only hope we have is to understand where is this money going? Um, why are the producers so often at the, at the, at the losing end of this, of this deal here? Why globally is only 10% of our entire value chains, uh, value generated staying in the countries where coffee is produced? And, I, I think transparency, you hit a really, really important point there. Thanks. I, I agree. Uh, and I really am looking forward to hearing more about this project. 
uh, whenever there's more info on it. Um, this study uh, is not specific to coffee, but it was conducted in 2016 by a company called Label Insight on food labels. Um, and I think if companies knew how much transparency would benefit them in the long run, um, people would be more on board. Um, so I'm just going to quote a few stats from it. Um, if a brand showed label transparency and that was consumer interpretation, so it's like listing ingredients, certifications, um, process, that kind of stuff. Um, 39% of the consumers that they uh, surveyed, which is about 2,000 people, um, said they would switch to the new brand because of that transparency. 56% um, said they would be loyal for life. And if you just showed transparency in general, 94% um, of those consumers said they would be more loyal to the brand. Um, and those are all really big stats. Um, I know brand loyalty isn't, like right now we're just talking about the general specialty market. Um, but if you want to be more competitive, I would say try going for transparency and it does benefit the industry in the long run. I mean, there's a, there are like fashion companies, uh, for example, like Everlane is one, right? Like not to, I've never even bought anything there, but you can go onto their site and see how much they pay for something, what their margin is. Like, it's incredible. And they're doing, they're a company that's doing really well for itself. And they have, they have like, they opened with transparency in mind and they have that. And so they'll say, yes, this costs this much money. Here's why. Because we don't want to participate in, in fast fashion, you know? So it's like, these are industries that are like heavily marginalizing people causing, you know, food insecurity. And they're just, I agree with Jen that like there are, if doing the right thing is not enough of an impetus that there are, there's a business reason. Like I, I feel like I said this during the panel that as producers are getting more access to social media. Like this is not, it's exactly like what Chad said. This is not something that you're going to be able to run away from. I really view us as being in a crucial point because it's like, we are not, we're not going, we're not going backward. We are only going forward. And so companies really have to think, do I want to be on the, you know, when, when the great investigative journalist journalism piece gets written, do I want to be on the right side of this? Because uh, it really is that serious and it's that dire and nobody's is giving it that urgency, at least not on a grand scale. And very often there are business benefits to doing the right thing. And so, no, you are not going to make the highest margin possible that you have ever made in your life. Right. And so we have to think, what kind of industry do we want to be? Do we want to be the industry where it's more important to make a little bit extra or is it okay for you to do the right thing? Right. And there is something very, that's, that is sewn into the fabric of our sort of country. It's like rugged individualistic thing where it's like, well, that guy can do his thing and he worry about his thing and, and I'll worry about mine. Except if coffee, except if producers were like that, we wouldn't have coffee. Like when you're talking about a 
uh, we're talking about an agricultural product that could never be grown here. There's, there's no way that's not the way that we should be participating in the supply chain. Well, I really like what you said. The, the, well, two things. When the great investigative journalism piece is written, what I hope is uncovered um, and should be uncovered is that we are an industry that has known and evaluated this same problem for decades. We have seen and watched this thing go but because of our oversubscription to free markets will adjust themselves, um, we're, we're, we're still talking about it. And we've known about the hardships that coffee production too often lead to. We've known about coffee's own role in contributing to the migrant caravan that's generating uh, lots of international media coverage and it's coming from uh, coffee producing origins. We know about food insecurity. I mean, we know about these things as an industry that has incredibly generous profit margins on this side, the consuming side of the value chain, and yet we've not changed anything. So, I mean, I'm of the mind that we really need that piece to sort of shed light on the really dirty underbelly of, of the coffee industry. Yeah, I mean, if you read that, Wall Street Journal article from today. And at the end of it, it's it's really a, a portrayal of coffee companies that are able to spend, you know, significant amounts on extremely expensive build-outs and just, you know, consumer Willy Wonka-ism and, and, and calling out that green coffee costs are a very, very small percentage of the overall cost to sell that coffee at a specific price. And just thinking about, well, how can, how can we sit by and watch the composite price of coffee diminish by 11% in one year? It's just, I mean, it's, it's criminal. <laughs> you can edit that out if you want to. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, we're not obviously going to solve anything here. But um, I think that it's it's reassuring to hear your perspectives that, you know, price transparency and just general transparency is going to continue in the near future, that there are companies that are doing it in other industries and are benefiting from it. There are companies that are um, actually not just publishing their costs and their suppliers costs but they're actually saying you know this is our this is our new business model right we're going to take we're going to take smaller margins we're going to sell more units we're going to return less to our investors you want in you want out you know that sort of thing and you know when the overall benefit is to redistribute the value that is generated at our end of the supply chain you know i think that if we can Start if we can get coffee companies to adhere blindly to 55 grams of coffee per liter of water. You know, I think that at some point we can get coffee companies to put historic education into their training programs to talk about economics of coffee supply chain, even at a high level, and to stop seeing our producers and to start talking about real partnerships or allowing 
those partners to post on their own social media platforms or, you know, to really engage with them in ways that are super authentic and, um, and just prove that this not lip service, you know? So I'm, I'm, man, talking to you guys, it made me sad at first, but now I'm feeling more positive. (laughs) And do you guys, do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? I just really hope that there is a way, I mean, this is a very unsexy conversation. It flies in the face of all of the uh, appeal and, and, and this, I don't know, there's this image or there's this aesthetic that, that, that has developed within our industry. And I want to find a way for this topic to, instead of be, uh, sort of marginalizing and alienating and, ooh, I don't want to talk about that. I instead want this to be something that we're excited to learn about and proud of admitting, maybe. Is that too much? No, not too much. No, I don't think so at all. And I I want to sort of leave people with Sort of like, I want coffee to be the best version of itself. And I don't care if that sounds cheesy. I still think that coffee is full of a lot of good people. It's been my favorite industry to work in so far. And that's part of the reason why I don't pull any punches, right? Because it's like, if I thought we were a lost cause, I would put chuck up a couple deuces and walk away. But it's like, I'm going to keep pushing because... I think that we that we can do it. And so people really need to think like it's exactly like what you said, Colleen. Like green coffee costs aren't that high. And so they need to examine where the the internal pushback is from themselves for spending more on green. Because it's like. Are you running the rest of your business in the most shrewd way possible? Is it a real impossibility for you to spend less money on green coffee and, and make uh, and make money? And also, why is it so why does it feel so, like such a big deal to spend more to spend more money on green? Right. And I think that this is a deeper conversation that unearths different things like, but what is the real value you're putting on producers work? Because what you say is one thing and the check that you write is another one. So Jen, Tamika and Chad, thank you so much for joining us today and for all of your insights. This has been the RICO podcast brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. That's it for the Changing Tide sessions recorded at RICO Symposium this past April. It's been a pleasure to host the podcast these past three episodes. I'm Colleen Anunu, and thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned to the podcast for episodes from session four from RICO, which was titled Harnessing the Power of Science.